Right, so go for your Bibles. And we'll go for it. Um, we are not under law but under grace. That's what we're looking at. And uh, we've answered three of the four questions we're going through and uh, we come tonight to the last one. We did grace last time and saw the new covenant. And uh, the fourth question that we're asking is this. Is being under grace a form of lawlessness then? Though we're not under law, we're under grace. So does that mean we're not under law in the sense that it's lawless? And uh, let's actually define the problem here. If you go to Jude verse 4. Jude verse 4. Don't worry, I read it out, so uh, don't, don't worry if you can't find it. Jude I can't find it. <laughs> so why should you be able to find it? Oh right, yeah, here we are, Jude verse 4. And what we're going to be doing tonight is knocking the error of license completely on the head. And uh, Jude says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in, in among you. They're godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for being immoral. And there you've got it. People who say <coughs> that uh, the fact that we're under grace, it means license. Uh, you can do what you like. In effect, that's what license is. It's saying we're not under law, and because we're under grace, we're more or less free to do what we want. And if you turn to Romans chapter 5, I'll show you kind of like the verse... Or one of the verses that, uh, you know, those who go in for this uh, tend to quote. We'll be looking at, at two or three of them. But in Romans 5, and uh, <coughs> if you find the second half of verse 20, and um, or it says this, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Uh, I prefer, you know, the version of the Bible that translates it, Where, where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. And in effect, what these people say is that sin brings out God's grace, because where there's sin, God meets it with grace and he's glorified. And of course this is true, isn't it? He saved us from our sin through his grace. But what they say is that, that kind of there is so, you know, it's okay to sin without restraint, because in fact the more we sin, the more God's grace shows itself. And therefore, God is glorified, because the more their sin, the more grace pours down from heaven. And in effect, they're saying that, uh, you know, let's carry on in sin, it doesn't really matter that much, because when we sin, God's grace is there, and it actually glorifies him to sin. And um, now, the early church faced this primarily from the Greeks. Legalism was the problem they faced with the Jews in the church, but this was the Greeks. And they believed that matter was evil. This was Greek philosophy, Plato, or Platonism. And Plato himself saw the human body as the prison house of the spirit. And so Greek philosophy saw matter to be inherently evil. It was a kind of something that went wrong in creation. It was a kind of a byproduct of something the unknown god, as they would say, did, you know, sort of you know, way back in the past. And, um, and they believed that spirit was good. So, 
what they had is that inside you, you've got a body and your spirit. The spirit is good and all things spiritual are great, fantastic, but matter is itself evil. Now, that led to two different outlooks on life amongst the Greeks. It led firstly to Stoicism, or the idea that if your body is evil, and they said it was, therefore bodily desire is evil as well. So what you've got to do is you've got to spend your life denying your sort of bodily senses as much as you possibly can and concentrate purely on spirit. And so these guys, they would deny themselves pleasure and life was self-discipline and, and, you know, no pleasure at all. You know, anything you enjoyed, step back from and, you know, be disciplined about it. In effect, legalists in that sense, all right. Um, but other Greeks, what they said was, right, okay, the body's evil, matter is evil, but we're stuck with it, guys. We've got to wait till death before we become spirit. That's what they, you know, you went through various what were called aeons or, you know, various layers spiritually that got you into some kind of weird heaven, all right? And they said, look, matter is evil. We've got no choice about it, all right? And we've got these desires in our body and, and okay, they're all wrong, but as long as we're physical, we're stuck with it. So what the hell? Let's just have a good time. Because that means that we're evil. If my body is evil, well, okay, everything it does is evil. But on the other hand, I can't get out of it, can I? So, you know, therefore, do what you like. And they handled it like that. Everything is evil, so fine, just do what you like. And uh, in the Corinthian church, as you well know, they were so immoral. I mean, Paul was writing to them and saying, now, look, lads, you've got to stop going to the temple prostitutes. This is smack on the wrist job. And of course, that problem in the Corinthian church wasn't from the Jewish contingent, it was from the Greeks in the church. Because their background, matter is evil, but you can't help being material, so what the hell, just go ahead and do it. That was their outlook. Look, a real hedonism, a real eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, so in effect, they came along into the church and they got converted and they saw, look, you know, this grace and sin, where sin abounds, grace stuff much more abound. Hey, this is great, you know, and so they were carrying on in a real license. It doesn't matter what you do, it's okay because God will cover it, you know, sort of for us. Now, Greek philosophy got blown apart uh, by the fact that God became a man. Uh, legalism got blown apart by the New Testament as far as the Jews were concerned. But Platonism got blown apart because in the Gospel we have the fact that God becomes a man. God became matter. And that demonstrated once and for all that matter is not in itself evil at all. And that's why in Corinthians, Paul writes that the, um, that the Gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews, but folly to the Greeks. And it was a stumbling block to the Jews because they couldn't conceive of a God who suffered. Their problem wasn't so much God becoming man. Jews knew that matter was okay, you know, God created it. But their problem was with a God who becomes a man and then suffers. So it was a stumbling block to them. But to the, uh, the Greeks, it was folly, because the idea of God becoming man, when God, is, uh, sorry, yeah, when God is spirit and good, but matter is evil, God can't become evil, you see. Um, but Christianity blew it apart completely. But the problem was, Greek converts came into the church and uh, therefore the problem of license was let loose. And you had these people grabbing little bits of teaching saying it's okay to, you know, to carry on in sin, no problem lads, because of God's grace.
But of course, the real underlying problem here, regardless of philosophy or belief, is quite simply that even though we, as Christians, are born again, and we've got a new nature, we've got the law of God written on our hearts and our minds, all right, that, that's all true, we're born again, but the problem is that in spite of all that, we've still got a sinful nature. And our sinful natures and our sinful hearts still want to sin. And the heart is so deceptive that if it can carry on sinning and carry on being in rebellion against God, but find a way to somehow use God's word to justify that sin and back it up and say it's okay, well, that's exactly what the sinful heart does. And that's the problem with license in the church. You've got the sin nature in people, and they're giving into it, but they're being so deceptive because they're trying to twist the word of God to make it sound okay. Hence the famous quote. I mean, I've heard it from Christians down the years when confronted with something that's wrong and a sin. Oh, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, they say. And it's a classic example of twisting the Bible in an attempt to get the word of God to okay this idea that it doesn't matter if we sin, because of course we're not under law, we're under grace. Now, it would be very rare to find a Christian who went the whole hog on this. It's a matter of, you know, sort of, some go so far, others just a bit. I mean, you won't find Christians out there who literally say you can do anything you like, and that they're going around raping and pillaging and things like that, and saying the word of God says is okay. It's not that, you know, you get people going the whole hog, but do you remember in the first talk, we looked at the aeroplane and the wings? Now the point is you can be a little bit up either wing, and that's where the real danger comes in. And, uh, and what you've got, basically, is the problem of when you get things in the Word of God that don't suit, you know, they're, they're, they're commandments and rules and regulations that in your heart you don't really get on with. There is where you get the danger of slipping over into license and saying it doesn't matter and using all the Bible jargon to try and uh, justify it. Now, what we've got to see is that when Christians do this, i.e. they've got an area of sin in their life or something like that, or it might be areas, it might be quite a few things, that when they try to hook out of the air this thing about, well, it doesn't matter, we're under grace and not law, all right, uh, we've got to go on to see that when they say that, they are either actually ignorant of certain things that the Word of God says, or, or kind of they've conveniently forgotten certain things that the Word of God says, all right. Um, I mean, what scripture is the watchword of the Christians into license? It's Galatians 5.1, isn't it? Um, it's for freedom Christ has set you free, no longer, um, you know, return to a yoke of slavery. That's the watchword of the Christians into license. Their cry is freedom. To be under grace is freedom. And if they're confronted with biblical do's and don'ts that they don't like, then they simply put those things down to the yoke of slavery that they've been set free from. 
We're not under law, they say. We're under grace. Convenient, isn't it? Can you see what they're trying to do there is use the word of God to justify their going against the word of God. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and uh, just to see another uh, scripture that uh, often gets used um, in this regard, 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, remember what we're doing is we're seeing how people into license who feel free to go against the word of God will actually try and use the word of God to justify what they're doing. Uh, and in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, you get these words from Paul. Uh, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And here you get it, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And what they do is when you confront them with bits of the Bible that they don't like, they say, oh, no, that's the letter that kills. That's the letter that kills. I remember correcting somebody once for something that was, believe me, very, very blatantly against the Bible. And the reply I got was that I was killing her with the letter of the Word of God. You're killing me with the Bible, she said. This is a load of rubbish. But what she was trying to do was to make out that because it was having a bad effect on her, i.e. she didn't want to change in that area, what she was trying to do is to put down the bits of the Bible that I was using. No, that's the letter killing. The Spirit gives life. And so what they tend to do is that there are bits in the Bible that they don't like and they're sort of, you know, thrown out of the window and it's done on the pretext that the Holy Spirit is leading them to the contrary. You see what I mean? I mean, classic example, for instance. Um, I know the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands, but the Lord has shown me that I don't have to submit to mine. I've had that said to me by people. Can you see? And, and then you come back with what the Bible says, and you get, yeah, but that's the letter kidding, isn't it? This is the Spirit. The Spirit gives life, because I'm free not having to, is he? Uh, it's just absolutely daft. But the point is, that you get the idea that, oh no, the Holy Spirit is leading me in a different way, you know, and sort of like, I know it, gets, you know, it goes against the word of God, but then the letter kills, doesn't it? And if we've defined legalism as living under the old instead of the new covenant, then license are Christians who refuse to live even under the new. They consider themselves free from absolutely everything. Now, what we've got to see is exactly where the error lies in these people, because it is important. Firstly, these Christians are wrong about not being under the law. They quote, we're not under law, we're under grace. And uh, now, the way they use it, they're completely wrong about not being under the law. Now, in, in the second talk, we saw the law that we're not under. What was it? It's the Mosaic law. We, as Christians, are not under the Mosaic law, the Old Covenant. We are not under that. That is the law we're not under, and just that law. And that is why being under grace, the New Covenant, isn't lawlessness. And it's because, as we're going to see, the New Covenant puts us under laws of its own. Now, being free from the Mosaic Covenant, the not under law that Paul says, 
That doesn't mean that we're free from all law, full stop. I mean, that would be a nonsense. Uh, I mean, being born, you know, again, doesn't set you free from gravity, does it? The law of gravity. I mean, I notice you're all sitting on the chairs. You're not hovering six feet above them. Can you see? What a nonsense it is, the idea that, you know, being, you know, but that, you know, we're not under law, so that means we're not under any law at all. And if you go to Romans 13, I'll show you another law that we're not free from, regardless of being under grace. So the law of gravity still applies in us, doesn't it? We're not free from that. <clears throat> and uh, in Romans 13, verse 1, Paul says, everyone, he's writing to Christians, under the new covenant, you and me, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so uh, will bring judgment on themselves. And he goes on to say it's only lawbreakers who fear the authorities. Now, what have we got there? We've got the law of the land. He's talking about the government there. He's talking about the police. He's talking about the laws of whatever land they lived in. It's as simple as that. So, the point is, to be under grace, and therefore not under law, biblically simply means that we're not under the Mosaic law. And that is all. So when you get these Christians quoting we're not under law but under grace to justify sin, they're completely wrong. They're taking that the Bible's saying that we're free from all law. Well, what a nonsense. No, we're simply free from the Mosaic law, all right. Um, you know, so the laws of the land are binding on us, all right, irrespective of the fact that we're born again and under grace. In fact, they're binding on us precisely because we are under grace, as we're going to move on to see. Now, secondly, all right, we've seen that these Christians who cry, oh, we're not under law, but under grace, they're wrong about what not being under law means, but now we're going to see that they're completely wrong about what being under grace is all about as well. And we've got to, to now see something about a covenant that is royal grant, because we've seen that grace is a royal grant one, haven't we? And it's the fact that even though grace as a royal grant has been bestowed upon us freely, unconditionally, that even though that is true, we didn't ask for it, God gave it to us, we're in it, but it doesn't mean that a covenant such as that doesn't also impose demands and restrictions on those upon whom it's, you know, sort of you know, have it. Um, because they do. A covenant, even a royal grant one, when it's bestowed upon you, and, and that is just a free gift, but once it's handed to you and you're in it, then there are demands in that that we have to actually meet. Go back to Genesis chapter 9, and we'll see the covenant with Noah again. Genesis chapter 9 the royal grant covenant that God made with Noah. Genesis chapter 9, 
Um, now, in the last verse of chapter 8, you get the promise where God says that seed time and harvest will endure cold and heat, winter and summer, blah, 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 all right. And then picking up in uh, chapter 9, verse 8 through to 17, God says, here is a promise, I'm not going to flood the earth again, all right. A covenant, a free gift, all right. Royal grant, no conditions to be fulfilled at all. The promise happens regardless of what anyone else does. But, notice, and we saw this, didn't we? In verses 1 to 7, God gives commands to Noah to pass on to the human race that God expected to be obeyed. They weren't conditions for the covenant. The covenant stands whether the you know, sort of whether the laws are done or not. And the proof is all the laws have been broken, but the earth hasn't been destroyed by flood. But the point is the covenant brought responsibilities upon those who were in it. All right. Um, and last time in the Acts of the Apostles, we saw that the covenant of Noah is binding on us. The early church said, no, the old covenant has gone, but the covenant with Noah, you must obey that. All right. Um, if you go to Genesis 12, and we'll see the covenant with Abraham, also, a royal grant covenant, Genesis chapter 12. So we've seen with Noah, it was a royal grant covenant, unconditional, can't be broken, hasn't been broken. But there were laws within it, demands <laughs> and restrictions placed on the people in it, and God expected those laws to be obeyed. Um, now, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 4, you've got the original, you know, God speaking, and he makes a covenant with Abraham. Unconditional royal grant. Um, go over into chapter 17, and in chapter 17, verse 1 to 2, God restates it. You know, he goes over the covenant again, all right? But in verse 9, now this is after the covenant has been bestowed after God has said to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation, full stop, nothing can stop it, all right? But in verse 9, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. And then at the end of verse 10, he says, every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, what happens here, God has bestowed a royal grant on Abraham. Unconditional, free gift. Cannot be broken. God says, this is going to happen, and it is. Only depends on God, all right? But having bestowed it, God then says, now look, Abraham, here are your responsibilities, you and Israel's, as the people in the covenant that I have made with you. Not conditions, the covenant can't be undone. Not at all, it was royal grant. But there are responsibilities incumbent upon those in it. And what God says to Abraham is that you and all your people must be circumcised. And of course circumcision in the Bible was a picture of Israel being set apart from the world and being holy to God. It was a sign of holiness. So the point is, Abraham found himself in a covenant. He didn't ask for it, God gave it to him. And it's unconditional, it cannot be broken. 
But then he finds that God is saying, and now Abraham, here are the responsibilities that I place upon you as someone in it. Now, not that if the responsibilities aren't met, met that it's all undone. The covenant cannot be broken. But the point was, they were there because God expected the people to do it. And remember that royal grants were given by kings. So, you know, if you were subjects in the ancient world and your king, you suddenly found, here's a royal grant covenant, I'm giving you this city. Now the point is, it was given by somebody to whom you were in submission. And in the ancient world, you were in submission to your king. And woe betide you if you weren't. So the royal grant was bestowed upon you and you were already someone who was under the proper and due authority of the king who gave it to you. So once you've got the promise and the gift, you're still under the authority of the king who bestowed it on you. In fact, more so. Because what happens now is you've got a city to look after. Can you see? You've got responsibilities. The king has said, right, I'm giving you this plot of land, or I'm giving you that town. Now then, that's a gift. You didn't do anything to earn it, and the king will never take it away. But the point is, you've got a city to run, or you've got a farm to tend. Now the point is, you don't have to. You can let it go to waste if you like. It won't be taken away. But there are responsibilities incumbent upon the people who receive a royal grant from their king. Now, we're the beneficiaries of a covenant of grace that is royal grant, as we saw last time. Now, that has placed us in the position of absolute submission to God, who bestowed it on us in the first place. He is our King. He is our Lord. And He is our Master. And we are under His authority. To be in the covenant of grace, far from representing freedom to sin, it represents utter submission to the one who bestowed it on us in the first place. After all, last time, what did we see was the twofold purpose of grace into which we've been called. It was there to do two things. To forgive us of past sins, and it was given to change us on the inside. For God's laws to be written on our hearts and minds, to change us. Grace was given as a free gift to save us, but then to go on to sanctify us. Not just to save us from the penalty of sin, but its purpose was to then go on and save us from the power of sin. It's a covenant that puts upon us the responsibility of holiness. Uh, go to Romans chapter 28. Now these are verses that we looked at um, at the end of, of last week's talk, Romans 8. Um, um, we were seeing the thing about that with a covenant, it's not that you decide to fulfil a condition and enter into it. Uh, because you're called into it, it's simply given and you find yourself in it, alright? And we saw that, didn't we? Um, in Romans chapter 8, 
and verse 29, we saw these verses. He says, For those who God foreknew, he also be predestined. All right. And when we saw that, that God decided that we were going to be in, um, in grace, saved. But look what for? To be conformed to the likeness of his son. <coughs> Can you see the point? God has called us and he saved us. And he saved us not just from the penalty of sin, but he then wants to go on and conform us to being like Jesus. Now what's the difference between Jesus and us? He's holy, we're sinful. The new covenant is there to conform us to him. To make us holy, bit by bit, like he is. Go to Ephesians, and the verses in Ephesians when we see Paul dealing with the fact that God calls you into the covenant. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 4. And he says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless. See? Holy and blameless. That's what the new covenant is all about. Not just to save us, but to sanctify us. Go to 1 Peter, one of the other verses we saw. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Um... And Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what we've been called to. And so here's the point. Grace has called us, not just to salvation, in the sense that now we're going to heaven and not the lake of fire. Grace hasn't simply called us into that. It has called us also into holiness. And the responsibility of holy lives is placed upon you and I as those who have found ourselves in the covenant of grace that God has brought into being through the death of Jesus. Now, I emphasize again that this holiness is not the condition for the new covenant being fulfilled in us. It's not the condition. The new covenant that we're going to end up glorified like Jesus, nothing can change that. It's a royal grant covenant. Nothing can prevent that. If someone's born again, they are going to be glorified because that depends only on the Lord. It doesn't depend on them. So we're not saying that holiness is a condition, i.e. that someone gets born again and if they you know, stay as a carnal Christian and they don't grow in the Lord and they carry on in sin, we're not saying that therefore, you know, sort of like they've not fulfilled the conditions and they get kicked out of the covenant. You can't get kicked out of the covenant. It's not possible. It's royal grant. It's down to God. But what we're seeing is that holiness is a consequence in our lives because God has called us into grace. It is our bounden duty as people called into grace to submit ourselves fully to the Lordship of Jesus over us. Alright? So, we are not under the Mosaic Law. We are under grace. A new covenant. Not the old covenant of law. The new covenant of grace. But, this does not imply in any way that we are therefore free to live in a kind of 
lawlessness for the reason that the new covenant of grace puts us under a law of its own. We are not under law in the, the law of Moses, we are not under that. But we are under the covenant of grace and I'm now going to show you that the Bible calls it a law and actually gives it names. Go back to Romans 8. <coughs> the law we are not under is the Mosaic law. But the new covenant of grace is itself a law with lots of other laws that make it up and those laws we are under. Now, Romans 8, verse 2. Paul says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, that's the new covenant of grace. And what here does the Bible call it? It calls it the law of the spirit of life through Christ Jesus. It is a law, as surely as the Mosaic law was. <coughs> Go to the book of James. <coughs> Find initially chapter 1. <coughs> James chapter 1. Um, <coughs> And in verse 22, he says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And we'll be looking at that much more detail when we come on to do the book of James uh, fairly soon. But, but um, go down into verse 25 when he says, But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom... Now, I'm not interested in the rest of the verse, but can you see? He refers there to the perfect law that gives freedom. The new covenant. Again, we're seeing it's a law. And there it's called the perfect law that brings freedom. But nevertheless, it is a law. And a law gives you things you must do and things you mustn't do. That's what a law is. Apples must fall from a tree. Right? It's as simple as that. You must sit on your chair, not above it. It's a law. Okay, now chapter 2 and verse 8. And he says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself. Now there, he quotes the Old Testament. But what we're seeing here is that the new covenant includes love your neighbour as yourself, and it's called the royal law. Now why is it called the royal law? It's a royal grant covenant given by King Jesus. It's a royal law. And it puts us under the law of a king. And we must submit to the law of that king. And the reason here that it says that the royal law is love your neighbour, rather than saying love the Lord your God and love your neighbour, alright, is because as we're going to see in the book of James, he takes it for granted that they love God, but he's saying, right, now prove it to me. If you say you love God, love your neighbour. That's why the royal law isn't kind of love God with all your heart, then love your neighbour. The royal law is simply love your neighbour. Because you'll find out if you love God by whether you love your neighbour. But again, can you see, it's a royal law. It is a law. Remember, we're asking, 
Question number four, is being under grace a form of lawlessness? And we're seeing that it isn't in any way at all. And when Christians use this all, we're not under law but under grace, to go against what the Bible says, then we're seeing that this is utterly, utterly wrong in every way. Go now to 1 John 3, and uh, I think this will um, this will finish it off to a certain extent for you. 1 John chapter 3. Um, 1 John chapter 3 and he says how great verse 1 how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are the reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him dear friends now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known because the rapture hasn't happened so we're not glorified yet our glorification hasn't happened yet future salvation from the presence of sin is yet to come alright but he says but we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is and when Jesus appears at the rapture we'll see him in all his glory and will be glorified if you see God in all his glory it glorifies you that is the nature of God he says everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure obviously you purify yourself but look Everyone who sins breaks the law. Which law? The new covenant. It's a law. Now look at this. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is what defines sin. So any question of saying that being under grace is a form of lawlessness is nonsense. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is the refusal to be under the demands and the restrictions that Almighty God places upon us. Now, go now to Romans 6, and a, another angle is going to emerge here. Tremendously important one. Romans chapter 6. Now we'll start from verse 1. Look at this. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? He's saying, you people into license. You're, you're saying that the more we sin, the more grace increases, and then the more God is glorified. And he's saying, is that what shall, you know, we'll do? He says, by no means. He says, don't talk such utter nonsense. No way are we going to carry on in sin. We can't say that because we're under grace, it doesn't matter if we sin. Of course it matters if we sin. We've got to repent and put that right with the Lord. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He says, don't you realise that you died to sin? All right. And he says, verse 4, we were therefore buried with him. And uh, now go down to, um, now where's, where, where's the bit that I want? I've lost it. Um, yeah, verse 11. That's right. He says, in the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer your part, the parts of your body to sin as instruments of being wicked, but rather offer yourselves to God 
as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. Now, here we've got what the people into license quote. Because you are not under law but under grace. So, when people quote this, I'm not under law, I'm under grace to justify sin, the first part of that verse is, for sin shall not be your master. And the paragraph in which Paul writes it is saying, stop sinning. You now have to fight against sin. All right. Now then, verse 15. What then, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the teaching to which you are entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and sin, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Now, there we've got to bring out a tremendously important point, and it is simply this. The license cries out freedom. That's what the error is all about. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Christ has set us free, they say. It's their watchword. Now, question. What precisely do you mean by freedom? Do you mean complete freedom? Do you mean absolute freedom? And I have to say, there is actually no such thing. If complete and absolute freedom means doing whatever you want, then the truth is that there's only one person who can do that, and it's God. And he can do whatever he wants because he is all-powerful. We're not. There are always limits to freedom. There is no such thing as absolute or complete freedom when it comes to human beings. Are you free to go on a holiday you can't afford? Well, no. You might say, well, I'll borrow. Right, so I am free. Well, what of your freedom when you're paying the money back? Hmm. Or you might say, well, I'll nick it. Well, okay, but then what about the freedom of the person that you nicked it from? And what happens if they decide to, to say, well, they nick some money from me, I'm going to nick some of theirs back. What happens to your freedom? Can you see, what I'm trying to bring out is simply that freedom is a limited thing. Very limited. Uh, the only person who is completely and fully free is God himself. Human beings are never completely and fully free in any way at all. Now, here's the point. Man was created not to be fully free. Now, this is a big mistake. Some people think that God created us to be free. And they're using the word free in a sense of, you know, fully free, and that any kind of incursion on your freedom means you're not free. God created us for freedom. I've got to tell you, God did not create you and I to be absolutely free at all. The idea is an absurdity. We've seen that. You can't be absolutely free. You've got to be all-powerful, and we're not. But God created us 
to live in submission to him as our creator. Now, therefore, if we do that, we are a completely fulfilled creation. And here's the reason, because then, if we submit to him, we are free to be what we were created to be. No more, no less. We're free to be what we were created to be. But what were we created to be? In submission to God. Vitally important. Now, the problem was that Adam wanted to be free of obeying God. All went well until God started muttering something about there's a particular tree and a particular fruit and you're not to eat it. Uh, you know, so, so this, this, this was an incursion on Adam's freedom and Eve's freedom. Already the idea of complete freedom was in their heads. It's a nonsense, it's a deception, it's a lie from the devil, complete freedom. So Adam and Eve thought, not having that, and so they decided that they wanted to be free of obeying God. Now, precisely because God gave them free will, they were free to decide to, you know, to be free of God. Alright? They were free to do that. And so, that's what they did. So Adam got the freedom that he wanted. Alright? He came out of being in submission to God. He got the freedom he was after. But the trade-off was that he was then, and he took the whole human race with him, landed up in slavery to the power of sin. What of his freedom then? Now, can you see the point? Adam ended up, in some, some stupid notion of, I want to be completely free, he ended up simply swapping one limited freedom for another limited freedom. But I ask you, which was the best of the two? To be under the limited freedom of being in submission to God, or being under the limited freedom of being in submission to sin? Well, Adam backed the wrong horse, didn't he? Mm -hmm. and, and we all know that, that that's what we do as well. We back the wrong horse. Now, the New Testament calls Jesus the second Adam. And the reason it does that is that in the New Covenant of Grace, Jesus has reversed what happened in Eden. Eden. What... Um, Adam did in Eden, Jesus undid on the cross. He reversed it. Adam went from being in submission to God to being in submission to sin. What Jesus did on the cross is that he reversed it and gave away to come out from being under sin to being under God again. And what Adam found, in actual fact, was that the only freedom he really had was the freedom of choosing his master. That was the only freedom that Adam had. And that is actually the only freedom that you and I have. The freedom of choosing our master. And the truth of every man, woman and child is this. On the one hand, you can be bound by God and in submission to him, or you can be bound by sin and in submission to it. That is the extent of your freedom. And the choice is yours, the choice is mine. We cannot be free from both. If you're free from God, you're free 
You know, you're under the power of sin. <coughs> if you, you, you say, right, I'm through with sin, then the only way is to be under the power of God. Can you see? You're never completely free. And what grace has done in the new covenant is that it's rescued us from being in slavery to sin and put us back where we should have been all along, in slavery to God. The new covenant has made us no longer sin's slaves, it has now put us back to being God's <coughs> slaves. And every human being is a slave to either God or sin. But I ask you, which master is the best? A tyrant that destroys, or a loving father who uses his authority over us purely for our own good? thinking only of us. Grace, the new covenant of grace, has taken us out of the slave market of sin and has put us back into the slave market of God. And hence in Romans 6 we saw there Paul using the language of slavery. He's saying, you're not slaves to sin anymore, you're slaves to God and righteousness and holiness. So we're now in the slave market of God. But here's the point. The slave market of a God who then proceeds, proceeds to adopt his slaves as his own children and relate to them, not as a master over slaves, but as a loving father over his children. But as a loving father who nevertheless wants obedience from his children, like every father does, and who will punish and discipline if that obedience is not there, all right. So, what we're seeing, the idea of grace being a charter, um, you know, for, for, for Christians to, to disregard being under the authority of God and His Word. The idea that grace is a charter to carry on as, 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 as sin, we're seeing is not just a complete nonsense, because the idea of absolute freedom is a nonsense, but we're seeing that it is an, a, a godless and evil nonsense as well. Because the new covenant of grace has restored us to being God's slaves. And slaves are not free to do what they like. And neither are we as Christians. We are under the laws of the new covenant of grace. Do you remember in Romans 8 verse 2 a few moments ago we saw, you know, sort of Paul talking about the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, the covenant of grace has set us free from two things and both are a yoke of slavery. It's firstly set us free from the law of Moses, all right, the old covenant. Why? Well, we had to be free from that because the old covenant demanded holiness as the means of salvation. And it was demanding holiness as a means of salvation from sinners who literally didn't have it in them. That's why we had to be set free from the law. It was a bit like someone holding a gun to your head and saying, jump over the Eiffel Tower now or I'm going to pull the trigger. That's what the law did. You know, it asked something impossible. You couldn't do it. 
because sinners haven't got holiness within them. So we've been set free from that. But the second thing that grace has set us free from is this law of sin and death. It has set us free from the sinful nature inside us that once held total sway over us. Now the truth is now it doesn't. My sin nature no longer holds total sway over me. Before I was a Christian it did, but now it doesn't. Why not? Because I've been given a new nature that is created in the image of the righteousness and holiness of God. So the point is, my sin nature does not hold total sway over me anymore. It holds some sway over me, and sanctification is the process of lessening its hold. But it doesn't hold total sway over us, because we've got a new nature inside us. Alright, so we've been set free from the law of sin and death, because the sin nature could only sin. It was a law, it had no choice. An apple must fall downwards from the tree. So, what has grace done? It's provided forgiveness for past sin. We're forgiven. And it's granted eternal salvation as a free gift in Jesus. Right? Completely free gift. We are saved. And it's provided a means of the law of sin and death being broken in us by the fact that that law is now overridden by the law of the Spirit which governs the new nature that Jesus gave us inside of us when we were born again. Or think of it like this, having been granted wings, the law of gravity spiritually thinking that always pulled us down to sin, the law of sin and death, having now got our wings, all right, that law of gravity that pulls us down has been overridden by the higher law of aerodynamics. Or to put it another way, having been given wings, we can fly, we can fly, we can fly, we can... Can you see the picture? The law of the light, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the law of aerodynamics because we've got wings, the new nature, alright? Which overrides the law of sin and death or the law of gravity that our sin nature is always pulled down, alright? So, we can fly. We're free from the Mosaic law. We're free from the law of sin and death but only because we're in the new covenant of grace. The royal law, as we've seen it called in the Bible. But the point is, we are under that new covenant with its demands and, you know, sort of the do's and the don'ts of it, which are written down for us in black and white in the pages of the New Testament. So the new covenant has its laws written down for us as surely as the Old Covenant had its laws written down for Israel. And the point is, the New Covenant, the teaching of the New Testament, are our instructions for learning to flap our wings. And the New Testament, remember in the first talk, Testament equals a covenant. The New Testament is the book 
of the law of the new covenant of grace. And we are under this written law as surely as Israel was under the book of the law of Moses. The New Testament is as binding on us as Christians as the Old Testament was binding on Israel. And it's written down, the laws are written down for us in black and white in the New Testament. And a testament is a covenant. New Testament, New Covenant. Two words meaning exactly the same thing. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 13, Paul writing to Christians, to you and I, he says, you, my brothers, were called to be free. Now, is this total freedom? Uh-uh. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Because it's not a freedom to do what we like. And we must never try and make the new covenant of grace, of freedom to sin. He said, do not use that freedom to indulge the sinful nature. He says, you're not free to sin. That's not what the freedom is. What is the freedom we've got? Rather, serve one another in love. Which is what God wants us to do. Our freedom is the freedom to be slaves to God rather than slaves to sin. Look at verse 14. The entire law is summed up in a single command. What entire law? The new covenant. It's a law, just like the old covenant was. Demands and restrictions, and we're duty-bound to obey them. And what is the law summed up in? Love your neighbour as yourself. Does it say, love God and love your neighbour as yourself? Is that the royal law? No, it's not. And I'll tell you why. Because in the new covenant, all that matters isn't what you say, it's what you do. <coughs> Say you love God by all means, but show you love God by loving your neighbour. That is why, if you want to know if you love, love God, are you obeying this commandment? Love your neighbour, because that's how you find out if you love God. And this is why the New Testament is full of commands and instructions which are fully binding on us. The New Testament is chock-a-block full of do's and don'ts. And for these Christians who aren't into do's and don'ts because they consider themselves to be under law but not grace, I have only one thing to say. Tough. The New Covenant is a book of do's and don'ts. It is the instructions that God has given us for flapping our wings. Work out your own salvation. Bring into effect what God has done in us. How do we do that? Well, the instructions are in the New Testament. That's how we do it, all right. It's the manual that God is giving for living the new life that we have. And, and, and all these, these rules and regulations and teachings in the New Testament, they're not there for fun. I mean, God wasn't bored one Saturday afternoon and thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll write a few laws in the New Testament. He didn't do it because he was bored. He did it because these are the edicts of our King who has called us into the covenant of grace. And they are there to be obeyed and they are there to be lived by with repentance and confession being incumbent on us when we disobey and fall into sin. Because the beautiful thing about the new covenant is what happens when you do disobey. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. But what you can't do is to say, oh, well, I'm just going to sin, 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 and it doesn't matter. It does matter, 
we have not been granted that freedom by God. The freedom we've been granted is the freedom to serve him. Let's just go back, or uh, well, find Galatians 5 verse 1, and just the, the two verses earlier on, I said that the Christians into license love to quote, all right? We've seen this Galatians 5 verse 1, but we'll see it again. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the loke of slavery. Now, I've, I've been informed by many Christians through the years that this yoke of slavery is exactly the sort of stuff I teach. Now, we've got to ask ourselves, if we're free from this yoke of slavery, what is the yoke of slavery we're free from? Okay, let's read verse 2 and 3 now. Mark my words, I tell you, that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. What is the yoke of slavery there that Christ has set us free from and that we are told to make sure we don't get entangled up in again? It's the Mosaic law. That's what we're free from. Grace sets us free from the Mosaic law. Nothing else. It sets us free from the Mosaic law. So when believers use this, you know, for freedom Christ has set us free, you make sure they read the next two verses. It's talking about freedom from the Mosaic law, not freedom from everything. That 2 Corinthians 6 one, we've got to have a look at that. You know, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You're killing me with the word of God, Beresford. Well, it's my job, isn't it? <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. Uh, now, the last part says, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, we've got to ask ourselves, I mean, Christians use this to go against teachings in the New Testament. They say it's all right to have women elders. That's all right to have women elders. Oh, I know Paul says that, you know, you mustn't, but no, well, yeah, but the Holy Spirit, you see, the letter kills, the spirit gives life, and you see. Um, I mean, Robert was talking to someone the other day about obeying the speed limit, and he got the standard response, didn't he? Well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Which is another way of saying, you maintaining that I'm supposed to obey the law of the land, that's the letter that kills, isn't it? So as far as that Christian is concerned, Romans 13 is the letter that kills. Now, we've got to ask ourselves, what is this letter that kills, and what is this spirit that gives life? Is the letter that kills the teaching of the New Testament? Oh boy, we're in trouble if it is, aren't we? Oh, let's just pull out the lids on our coffins now. All right. Um, right, okay, let's, let's, let's find out. Is this letter that kills the teaching of the New Testament? Well, of course not. Let's read verse 7. And this is, you know, Paul carrying on his argument. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Blah, blah, blah. What is the letter that kills? The Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant. What is the Spirit that gives life? The New Covenant. And here, when Paul talks about the letter kills but the Spirit gives life, what he's saying there is he says, look, if the Old Covenant, which was the letter that kills, because what could the Old Covenant do? Condemn you. It told you you were sinful, it told you you couldn't be saved, but it didn't do anything to help you. It killed you, all right? So, the point is, if that ministry, if that covenant was glorious, even though it didn't help, even though it's destined to fade away, which it did when Jesus died, how much more glorious is the new covenant, 
which doesn't just tell you you're sinful, it saves you and it's going to last forever. That's Paul's argument. So here, the letter, the letter that kills is the old covenant. And the spirit that gives life is a new covenant. And how does a new covenant give life? Well, because you live in obedience to the teaching of the New Testament and God works out the life of the Holy Spirit within you, the life of Jesus within you. Look at verse 17 to 18, which is the end of his argument. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to do what? Freedom to live in obedience to the New Testament. That's the freedom we've got, we're God's slaves. Um, he says, and, and, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness. What does the New Testament do? You know, the covenant of grace? It doesn't just save us, it sanctifies us, it changes us on the, outside, on the inside. And here, when Paul talks, says we are being transformed into his likeness, do you know what the Greek word is there for transformed? It's metamorphoon. And it's the word we get metamorphosis from. And what does a caterpillar do? You know, it feels it ought to fly, but it can't. So it goes into a, you know, a pupa, all right, and it, it sort of, it metamorphoses. And it comes out and it's got wings. And now it can fly. Can you see the picture? Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. So the point is no way, no way are we free to just carry on unrepentantly in sin. All this rubbish about, well, we're not under law, we're under grace. You know, we don't, you know, the fine, you know, the fine minute details of the New Testament. No, I mean, they're unimportant. No, they are important. They're laws that are there to be obeyed. And the point is, yeah, if people want to carry on unrepentantly in sin, they're free to do so. They've got free will. They won't lose their salvation. They're saved. They're free to do so if they want. But what a disgraceful sham for Christians to engage in. What a, a scandal. What, <laughs> oh, what, a, what a bit of wind. <laughs> what a scandal and the hypocrisy. To be someone in the new covenant of grace and yet to be saying, this means that I can carry on in sin. When the truth of the matter is, to be in the new covenant is to be bound by its laws. All right. Now then, I re-emphasize here that progressive freedom from the power of sin in our lives, all right, sanctification, because it's progressive, it doesn't happen all at once, God will be working on us, setting us free from the power of sin in our lives until the day we die, all right? But what I've got to re-emphasize here is that that progressive freedom from the power of sin, all right, is not in any way at all the condition of the royal grant being carried out. And this is important because there are some Christians, they believe, that if you don't live a progressively holy life, well, then you've blown it and you've lost your salvation. We've seen that staff, it's royal grant covenant. It can't be lost. God has given you salvation, whether you like it or not. You got it. You were chosen. You got it. All right? Period. Nothing can prevent you from being glorified. It's as simple as that. But you see, the point is, the believer is justified, saved from the penalty of sin, regardless of whether or not they're faithful to the Lord afterwards. That is simply the nature of a Royal Grant Covenant. But, nevertheless, we are called to holiness as a direct consequence of having been placed in the New Covenant. You don't have to be holy, you can rebel if you like. But, what a sham, what hypocrisy. And you'll certainly never grow in the Lord. Go to 2 Peter. 
uh, chapter 3, and uh, verse here really just sums it up so, so nicely. 2 Peter, chapter 3. And he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, the day of the Lord starts at the rapture, and it ends at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ when he destroys the universe. That's the day of the Lord, that time period. Verse 10. The heavens will disappear with a roar. Elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now, God is going to destroy the universe because he's not going to need it anymore. It's been tainted by sin, and he'll create a new one. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, i.e., your future isn't in this universe. It's going to be in a different one. The new universe is going to be like this one, but it's going to be different, because it was tainted with sin. And he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Now what Peter is saying, you're in the new covenant. You were saved. You've been put in the slave market of God. Now he doesn't say, therefore you must be a holy person or you, you've blown it and you're out. He's saying, look, given that you're in it, what sort of person ought you to be? You ought to be living a holy life. You ought to be living a godly life. And, uh, and, and then in, in verse 14, he says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And what Peter's saying, he's not, he's not threatening them and saying, well, you've got to be holy, and the incentive is that you're going to be lost if you're not. That's not the... He's simply saying, you ought to be holy. You ought to take seriously your responsibility as someone in the new covenant to be living in submission to Almighty God. Now, I'm going to end this talk by clearing up what I said in an earlier talk about the Ten Commandments, because I'm still wide open on this. I mean, I stated for the record that the Ten Commandments are not in any way binding on us, and I stand by that. I stand by that, and I'm going to show you why. And it will illustrate well the ground that we've been covering, that we're not under law but under grace, not the old covenant but under the new covenant. Uh, now don't bother to turn to it, but in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 17, you read it when you get home if you like, you've got the Ten Commandments. The first ten of the 600 odd commandments of, of the law. All right. And uh, now, what I'm saying is, they do not apply to us. Not one of those Ten Commandments applies to you and I. The reason, they're in the old covenant. And that was between God and Israel, and we're not under it, we're dead to it. But, here's the point. Should any of them be restated in the new covenant, then they're binding on us. <coughs> so, let's, let's actually go through it. Uh, commandments, the first two commandments were to do with having no other gods, you know, before me, not me, God, you know, but God said, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and that, that thou shalt not make, a, you know, idols. So, so the first two commandments is, there's only one God, and, and idols are wrong, alright, the first two commandments. Go to 1 Thessalonians. I've put these together because it's these same verses that answer it. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. 
Oh no, it's not the same verse that answers it, but never mind. 1, one Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. And uh, Paul says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you... Oh, there it is again. Because our gospel... <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> but uh, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power. I honestly didn't know that was there, I'm sorry. Um, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Um, now then, go to, to uh, verse 9 now. He says, For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now there you have a statement, obviously, in the New Covenant, so it's binding on us that there is one true God. Alright? So, commandment number one of the Ten Commandments, yeah, that's binding on us. Because the New Testament tells us as well. It's binding on us because it's in the New Covenant. Alright? There's one God. Alright? Uh, the second commandment, uh, go to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and this is, uh, you know, sort of like the the second commandment that forbids the making and worshipping of idols. Not something particularly on the go in the West in this particular time period. You know, this is actually having images that you bow down to and worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, first of all, verse 4. So then, about eating food to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. And now go to verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. So there you've got idols. It's a no-no. No idols for us in the Christian church. Why not? Because it's in the law? No. Because it's in the new covenant. Not because it's in the old covenant, but because it's in the new covenant. Right, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Commandment number three. Go to 1 Timothy. Are we allowed to do this? Are we allowed to do it? It's important to know. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, verse 18. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy, my son... I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, i.e. their conscience. And the Christians who get into license, they reject their conscience. That's how they get into license. And it says, look, they've shipwrecked their faith. And I know so many believers who have done that. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, excommunication, all right, they've been put out of the church, to be taught not to blaspheme. Well, what's blasphemy? Taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. So there you are. We're not allowed to take the name of our God in vain. Uh, forget the Sabbath for the moment. We'll be back to that. Number five, honour your mother and father. Goes with Ephesians. Is this binding on us? Do we have to honour our mother and fathers? Good to know if we do. Ephesians chapter 6 and uh, verse 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on earth. There it is. It's in the New Covenant as well. So it's binding on us. 
Not because it's in the old covenant, but it's binding on us because it's in the new covenant. Right, uh, you shall not murder. Go to Romans 1 instead. <laughs> Romans 1 and um, verse 29, and Paul says, Uh, talking about, in, in the same way, the men also abandon natural relations with m women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed in deeds... Oh, I've got the wrong verse there, haven't I? Uh, where is it? Uh, 29? Tw ah, 29, yeah. Yeah, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. So there, murder is categorised as a sin in the New Covenant as well, so you're not allowed to murder. Adultery. Adultery. It's good to know this one. <laughs> Important to know what you're free to do and what you're not free to do. <laughs> Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. If anyone is sitting here saying, oh, I hope this one's all right, uh, come and see me afterwards because you need prayer. Um, adultery. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer. There you are, it's binding on us. Stealing, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Ephesians 4, 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. So they're stealing out, alright. False testimony, lying and slander. Again in Ephesians, but chapter 4 and verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. So there you are, telling lies, slander. That's wrong as well. It's binding on us. And then coveting. Go to James. I'm rushing now because the tape's running out. Ah, yes. Not that one. Not that one. Not that one. James, chapter 4, 1 to 2. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. So there, there we have again, covet. It's a sin, condemned in the New Covenant. And also, if you go through the New Testament, do you remember we looked at the law, there were what I called the moral sundries, homosexuality, um, occultism, and, you know, sort of chuck bestiality in there as well. And you'll find in the New Testament all, all those sorts of things are equally condemned. So, therefore, you know, binding on us. Now, the only exception is that the fourth of the Ten Commandments was the Sabbath, repeated nowhere in the New Testament. It's not a part of the New Covenant. There is no Sabbath. No Sabbath observance in the New Covenant at all. It was one of the things that just marked out Israel as a nation. And uh, in fact, in the Bible, you can look up Colossians 2 and Galatians 4, I haven't got time to read them, but you'll find that when Paul talks about holy days and Sabbaths, it's to say there aren't any more, all right. So Sunday is the Lord's Day, yes, the New Testament says that. Sunday is the Lord's Day, but it's not a Sabbath and there is no special observance. It's simply the day that the church comes together, okay? But that about the Sabbath is a separate talk, but all, all we need to know here is that nine of the Ten Commandments are binding on us. But not because they're in the Old Covenant, but because they are in the New Covenant, and they are binding on us, therefore. The Sabbath isn't, there isn't a Sabbath anymore at all, so that has no part of our lives in any way. Sunday is the Lord's Day, but it's not a Sabbath, and the Sabbath was a Saturday, and biblically you're free to do what you like on a Saturday. Do you see what I mean? Right, okay. Um, we carry on next time with a kind of a, a summing up. Amen. Oh,